Welcome to the Coaching DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Wyckoff. This week, I am reposting an episode that I did back in July of 2020. Uh, this episode is with the Director of Mental Conditioning for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Bernie Holiday. This has been one of my most popular episodes to date, and as you will hear, Bernie is a stud. This first episode is filled with practical tools and ideas to help your athletes' mental game. So without further ado, my conversation, part one with Bernie Holiday. Bernie, thanks so much for taking time out um, to join us on the podcast today. Let's dig right in. And uh, why don't you walk us through your journey from high school to present day? Sure thing. Um, I grew up in a town called Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, a suburb about 20, 30 minutes outside of Philly. And uh, grew up mainly playing tennis. That was sort of my, my go-to sport, which led me to college. I went to college at Kutztown University, which is a Pennsylvania State School, kind of right in the center of the state, and uh, played tennis there for four years. And what was kind of funny was um, every year at the end of the season, I thought I'd quit. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done with this. Uh, I'm not coming back next year. But then I'd show up the next year and I'd play one more year. So I ended up playing all four years at Kutztown playing tennis. Graduated with a degree in criminal justice, of all things, and started working in the criminal justice field afterwards and realized very quickly that it's a high burnout type of uh, uh, field. Everybody had dark rings under their eyes. Everybody seemed exhausted. Everybody seemed like they were very selfish. It was about them and and, and them alone. And it was exhausting to, to be in that field for a year or two. Um, at that time, I was doing this crazy job where I'd walk around in supermarkets and retail stores acting like a customer, but really I was catching shoplifters. And uh, there was a moment when I got a phone call from an old friend, a tennis friend who said, hey, we'd love to have you come teach at our racket club. So I was teaching tennis in the evenings. I was doing this um, uh, straight clothes detective work in, in, the, in the supermarkets and retail stores. And I realized I really loved my evening job teaching tennis and I really hated my day job, oh, which was catching bad guys. And uh, it was something about just the fact that the people came to, to learn tennis. They wanted to learn a lifetime activity. They wanted to challenge themselves. They wanted to grow and try something hard. They wanted to be fit and to move. Um, they wanted to compete and challenge themselves. And it was so inspiring to be around that group. And then I'd go and catch people who were trying to steal stuff during the day. And it just didn't have that same kind of fascination and appeal and excitement that, that tennis brought me when I was coaching it. So I got this call from a former coach who said, hey, we've got this job in the Caribbean to teach tennis at a, at a resort as the head teaching pro. And do you want it? And I said, I don't know. It's not in my field. I went to school for criminal justice. Maybe I should focus more on just kind of getting in my career path. And he said, well, let me know. I'll keep it open for a couple of weeks and uh, you call me back if you want the job. So about a week later, I was in a parking lot chasing after a small woman who was a shoplifter. She turned around and punched me in the ear. And I thought, this is it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. So I called up that guy that night and said, hey, this is my, my two-week notice. I'm not going to be back. I'm going to the Caribbean to teach tennis. And that's where I kind of went through my, my early life crisis of what am I going to do with my life? I got this degree in criminal justice, minor in psychology. 
I don't like the field. I really love this, this teaching coaching thing, but I'm not really sure what to do. So I had my parents send me some books on sports science and uh, I teach lessons in the morning. It was too hot to play in the afternoon. So I sit on the beach and read these books. And then in the evening, I go teach more tennis lessons. And I came across this field called sports psychology. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know it was even a formal discipline or an academic study. And as I read it, I realized this is really what I want to do. This is fascinating to me. It's the combination of human behavior and peak performance. And where do those two things intersect? And as I read it, I kept coming across this guy's name, Damon Burton, Damon Burton, Damon Burton, everything that I seemed to really enjoy about the sports psychology field as I read through these different books, um, his name kept popping up. So I looked him up and realized he was at the University of Idaho and uh, gave him a call, said, hey, I love your program. I'd love to come and do a graduate degree in sports psychology with you mentoring me. And as we talked, we hit it off and felt like it was a really great connection. And he ultimately allowed me to come to University of Idaho and I did my master's degree there, my PhD there, and it was a wonderful experience learning from Damon. He's one of my um, one of my dearest friends and mentors. So I was there, had a teaching assistantship, which was pretty cool too, because I taught about twenty different lifetime activity classes, like beginning tennis, advanced tennis, beginning volleyball, advanced volleyball, beginning um, racquetball, advanced racquetball, beach volleyball, aqua fitness, circuit training, weight training. So it really gave me a good overview into coaching all different sports, all different types of movements, all different levels of, of individuals. And it was a great combination for my sports psychology degree to go through that teaching experience there as well. So uh, several times I had a chance to leave and go on to work full-time. I did an internship at IMG Academies, which was my first real experience in the sports psychology world. I never thought I'd do applied work before. I always thought I'd go into coaching or coaching education or youth sport. I didn't realize I could be a full-time sports psychology coach or professional and actually get paid for a living. And I went through this summer internship at IMG and it was the best thing I've ever done. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was extremely dynamic, extremely challenging. And at the end of the, the summer, they offered me a full-time job to be a mental conditioning coach at IMG. But I turned them down because I didn't feel like I was ready yet. I felt like I had the peak performance side nailed, um, but I didn't really have the idea of mental health down yet. I didn't know if I could recognize mental health challenges. I didn't know if I'd be able to um, be able to notice and then properly refer somebody that had a mental health challenge or some kind of a, a mental illness to the right people that could help them. So I want to get back and get a little bit deeper there just so I had that, that more rounded experience to be able to help those who are on the other side of the continuum and really struggling with, with daily functioning. So I went back to school, uh, got a lot deeper into that area. And that's when IMG called back and said, hey, we've got another job for you at the Everett Tennis Academy in Boca Raton, Florida. It's a satellite academy that we own. And by that time, it was another year and a half later, and I felt like I'm ready now. Let's do this. So I jumped into the uh, Everett Tennis Academy and built up their program for a year as their director of mental conditioning. Um, at that period, uh, this happened. So um, my wife was up in Seattle at the time, or at least the, the Pacific Northwest. I was down in Florida and we realized that it's not gonna work with us being so far apart. And I had to make a really tough decision. So after a year at Everett, I decided I need to be back closer to my wife in the Washington area. Um, went back to finish my PhD at Idaho and uh, it just it was the right timing for us to get back together and to be face to face and not be 3000 miles apart. So, uh, um, make a long story longer, uh, 
was another year and a half into my PhD program. And I got a call from a dear friend, Sarah Castillo, who was a mentor of mine. She was a PhD student when I was a master's student. And she was working at the United States Military Academy at West Point as a full-time peak performance coach teaching sports psychology to cadets. And she said, hey, we got a perfect job opening for you. It's some of your favorite sports. You'd work with men's and women's tennis. You'd work with women's volleyball. You'd work with soccer. Um, do you want it? And I, I said, I'd love to check it out. So I talked with their director, Nate Zinzer. And Nate's another one of my, um, one of my impactful people in my life, a, a true mentor of mine. Nate's the director of that program. And he ultimately said, hey, we'd love to have you come on board. So I went to West Point, uh, took the job, and it was a wonderful six years um, at West Point for me. It was humbling because I was there right after 9-11. So you knew that everybody that was coming to West Point, they knew that after four years, they were going to war. So it was a very different type of student that was coming in to West Point to go through that experience. And uh, as I went through West Point, what would happen was these cadet athletes would graduate and then they'd go right into preparing for deployment and they would become a, they'd become a platoon leader or a company commander, um, a lieutenant, and eventually a, a captain in the army. And they would start leading troops and they started calling back to us saying, Hey, you know, that stuff that you taught my volleyball team, I'm now leading a hundred people. Can you come teach my soldiers that? Because they need that too. That we're about to deploy in six months mm. or, you know, Hey, you know, you work with me as the tennis captain for four years. Now I'm a company commander and we're deploying in a year. Can you come out and teach my unit what you taught my tennis team? And they started to realize there's a lot of overlap in that performance is performance. And uh, the last two years of that job at West Point was more focused on soldiers and leaders and units than on cadet athletes. So that's where my job shifted. And to fast forward a little more, that's where Kyle Stark came in. I know Kyle was on your show and yeah. You know, Kyle was a progressive thinker. He's an innovator in the game of baseball. And he said, you know what? I want to find out what the military is doing to develop mental toughness because whatever they're doing, I'm sure that that's going to be able to help um, a ball player in the box or a ball player on the mound. If it can help a soldier stay calm, cool, and collected, I'm sure it could help a ball player stay calm, cool, and collected. So he went to the Navy, kind of hit a dead end there, went to the Army. They directed him to the program that Nate Zinzer was overseeing. And uh, he talked with Nate, and Nate said, great. Um, Sounds awesome. Kyle said, we'd love to do something like this. I think I understand the program. I need a person. Um, do you have a name for me? And they said, oh, Bernie would be great, but he loves what he's doing now. He's not going to have any interest in, in jumping ship and, and becoming a pirate. And Kyle said, well, would you mind if we just talk with him? And Nate said, no, here's his number. So Kyle called me up uh, the next day and we spent three hours on the phone. And I didn't realize it, but somewhere in that three-hour conversation, uh, it turned from a conversation about best practices and epic fails into a job interview. Hmm. And a few days later, he called me up and said, hey, do you want to be a bucko? And that's where my whole job shifted um, from sport to the military and then back to sport, uh, working as a Pittsburgh Pirate. And that was 11 years ago. I can't believe I've been in professional baseball for 11 years doing this sports psychology and mental conditioning thing. But that's kind of what got me to where I am today. I want to loop back around and hit, hit a couple of things here. Um, you said your internship at IMG was the, the best thing you've ever, the best thing you had done and the hardest. Explain what, what, what made it so great and so hard. Sure. I mean, when I think about the audience and, and the populations I've worked with afterwards, uh, you know, first going into soldiers and then some of the smartest dudes on the planet at West Point and then professional baseball players and big league players, it's kind of funny to think that, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old tennis players and lacrosse players would be more difficult. But it was really a, a 
PhD on thinking on your feet and being creative. Because what happens in Florida every day in the summer is you get this huge thunderstorm from about three o'clock to five o'clock. And it's sunny before that, it's sunny after that, but you know it's going to rain right at three o'clock every single day. So what happens was we'd be on the court, we'd be in the field. They've got about six different sports at that time. And kids from, you know, seven, eight years old up until 17, 18 years old. Excuse me. And uh, what would happen is at three o'clock, the clouds would roll in and they'd pull all the kids from all the courts, from all the sports and put them in one room. And you've got kids that are seven, kids that are 17, um, boys, girls playing six different sports from 15 different countries. And most of those countries aren't um, the United States. So they're speaking, you know, 15 different languages and none of them are English as their first language. And they just basically say, hey, Bernie, you got them for an hour, teach them something. And immediately you go into this panic mode because you have to figure out how am I going to teach this sort of wide variety of people and interests and sports and languages and cultures. And it became hugely challenging to be able to convey some simple principles when you couldn't rely on English. So we had to use a lot of visuals. We had to use a lot of activities, a lot of things that were self-explanatory. And it really honed my teaching and my coaching skills to be able to convey a message in such a diverse way to so many different types of people. And doing that every single day was just, you know, flexing that adaptability muscle, flexing that creativity muscle, and realizing that going into soldiers wasn't as difficult after that. And going into work with professional baseball players wasn't that hard after that. That looking back on to this day, that IMG experience set me up so well because it was so challenging and so unpredictable. You just never knew what was going to happen there. It went in terms of just the types of kids you were going to get, the size of the room you were going to get, when you were going to get them. You just had to be ready. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. So there's a book called Range. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. And the, the author is escaping me right now and talking about how, um, you know, for forever it was the the ten thousand hour rule. Just be be great at one thing. And this guy talks about range and you know being brought over over multiple disciplines, having having range in your experiences and stuff. So you start off as a criminal justice major and actually spend some time working in the the, the that field, criminal justice. Then you uh, start coaching and teaching. Then you go to um, IMG where you're, you're working with different sports. And then you go to West Point where you're working with sports, but then also military. Um, how would you articulate? Actually, I'm going to ask a question this way. Did criminal justice, has that played in at all to, to what you're doing over the last 11 years? I... I'd say academically, no. Uh, When it came to the content that I learned, no. But I do think that job that I had when I was working in supermarkets and retail stores, um, catching shoplifters, definitely gave me a lot of empathy for what an Mm -hmm. athlete experiences under pressure. Because what typically happened when you're going to steal something, I can give you sort of a shoplifting 101 here. But what they would always do is they typically always pay for something. So you'd steal something big like, you know, $50 worth of batteries. And then you try to buy a pack of gum because mm. for some reason people thought that you felt like you were being honest and legit. If you walked through the line and paid for something, you would take the, 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 uh, the magnifying glass off you. So they always seem to pay for something. So I would see somebody steal 10 packs of cigarettes and then they'd grab a candy bar and they'd get in line. And my job would be to get in line right behind them. And they'd go through the line. I'd make sure they didn't pay for the, the cigarettes. They'd pay for the candy bar only. And then once they got past the point of sale and they started walking toward the door, that's when I tap them on the shoulder and say, hi, I work for the store. You can come with me. I have to ask some questions about some cigarettes. And I remember standing behind them and you feel your heart just start to pound out of your chest and your palms get instantly sweaty. 
and your mouth gets instantly dry and you start to shake and tremble as you're standing behind them, pretending that you're going to buy toilet paper that's under your arm. And meanwhile, you're going through a million different thoughts in your head. Of what am I going to say? And what if they want to run? What if they want to fight? What if they want to argue? What if they want to make a scene? And you get that paralysis by analysis momentarily in terms of what's going to happen as soon as I confront this person. And I would catch about one shoplifter a day. And I remember having that experience every day for about 300 days where I'd have sort of this flood of adrenaline and this mm. flood of cortisol and this, this big stress response. And to be able to manage it, work through it, experience it, and sort of lean into it by the end really helped me better empathize with what athletes go through when they're pitching in the ninth and the bases are loaded and it's you know the tie score and they got to get it done. Or when you're stepping into the pinch hitter with, with a guy on third and two outs, and that's the game-winning run. Um, the kind of adrenaline flood that they've gotten through those experiences. So I think yeah. in that regard, I, I lean into that experience a lot in terms of what it's like to go through something extremely stressful and to still have to perform. Yeah, that's good. Oh, and by the way, the next day you got to get up and do it again. You don't get a week off. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Or maybe, maybe the next hour. You never know if somebody's going to come through an hour later and do the same yeah. thing. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you 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 read a lot of books while you were in the Caribbean on the beach. Um, during the hottest part of the day, what were some of the books that you read? Yeah, the one that was most impactful for me was written by the APA, the American Psychological Association, and I believe it's called Exploring Sports Psychology. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was basically an overview of the field uh, in an academic sense, but also very applicable. So it talked about all the different skills, the tools, the techniques of sports psychology, some of the research behind it. So it was a little bit researchy. Um, not as practical as a coaching book would be, but that really gave me a good overview of the field. Um, Terry Orlick had a couple books at the time. Um, Terry Orlick is a sports psychologist up in Canada. And, um, oh, geez, they had some strange names like Psyching for Excellence. Uh, but if you look up Terry Orlick, you'd run across two or three of the books that, that, that he had read or he had written, and they're all really good. I think the combination of those two really helped me understand that there was a field what the field was really about and that is something I really wanted to dive into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're with the pirates last, uh, 10 years getting ready to go into year 11, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. What give give it, give us a picture of what your rhythms look like. Give us a picture of what your job looks like with the pirates. What do you do on a day to day basis? Sure. It's different in three different areas. So I'll kind of go through three different phases of the year. The first phase would be more of a camp phase when you've got all of the players, all of the coaches, and then my team, I've got four guys, including me, that, that do this full time. So me and three others. And we're all in one place at one time. And what we typically do there is a combination of a lot of um, a lot of team chalk talks on the mental game where we'd have the team in together or we'd have all the pitchers or all the position players in together. And we'd walk through some mental principles about um, uh, performance excellence. Uh, we might be talking about how to embrace nervousness. We might be talking about how to, how to lean into emotion and, and play with emotion rather than playing emotionally. Um, we might be talking about um, understanding how to balance the training mindset with the trusting mindset. But it's more of these overarching principles about the mental game and about peak performance. And then we go into a lot of one-on-one work with players um, before the day, after the day, where we would really dive into how do you personalize these skills? How do you take this trusting mindset? We make it work for you. How do we understand what your nervous response is under pressure and how can you leverage that and lean into it and learn to embrace it? And we really tailor it to that individual's personality, their skill set, their needs for their own skills and their position. 
So a lot of the general education was done in group settings. And then a lot of the individual work was done one-on-one with players before and after the day. And then there was the middle part of the day where they're playing baseball. And we'd be out on the, out in the field, out in the outfield behind the, uh, behind the turtle when they're having batting practice. And that's largely when we're spending a lot of time with the coaches and we're, we're chatting up the coaches. We're learning from the coaches, what they're trying to accomplish in the drills. We're asking the coaches what they're seeing in the players. Um, we're watching how the coaches are coaching the mental game so that we can help them better understand um, how they can, as coaches, impact their players' mental toughness. Uh, we look at the drills and how the drills are constructed or arch- architected, how the day is architected to be able to develop mental toughness through the drill itself. Um, I can give you an example. Of, I don't know if you know baseball all that well, but there's something called infield outfield, which is a typical thing that baseball players do. And it's very orchestrated. You know exactly where the ball is going to be hit. That guy knows exactly where he's supposed to throw to when the ball's hit to him. And then he knows he's got, you know, eight or nine um, fungo um, shots before he's hit again. And the whole thing is very scripted. So it doesn't really have a lot of adaptability. It doesn't have a lot of decision-making. doesn't have a lot of a challenge. And then you do the same general idea, but it's called 27 outs, where you yell out a scenario. No one knows where the ball is going to go. And then you hit a ball to some player who doesn't know what's coming to him. He's got to then field it, make a throw based on the scenario. And if you make an error, you go back to zero. You got to make 27 outs in a row without a mistake or else you go back to zero. So there's the element of decision-making. There's the element of pressure. There's the element of, of consequence. There's the ability to be able to stay focused from point to point, not knowing from, from pitch to pitch, not knowing if the ball's going to come to me or not. So it's, it's very opposite of infield outfield. So we look a lot of how, how do the coaches put the drills together that'll help develop mental toughness as a byproduct of the drill itself. And I think 27 outs does a great job of doing that. Infield outfield does not. Yeah. So we watch a lot of that stuff when it comes to practice um, uh, during the camp settings. Then if you fast forward to in season from April through September, that's a lot different looking. Whereas we're all in one place at one time. Now we've got 300 players throughout the system in nine different places. We've got 150 coaches spread out nine different places. My team of four, including me, are in four different places. And we'll spend about five to 10 days at an affiliate, one of our minor league teams. And we'll basically be in deep with that team for those five to 10 days, where mornings would be time for us to work out or do what we needed to. We'd show up at the park around 12 or one o'clock and we'd be there until 11 p.m. And that's where typically we spend a ton of time with the coaches. Um, we talk to the hitting coach and say, hey, walk me through your 12 guys. How are they doing? Um, who are you really making progress with? Who's kind of have you stumped right now? We talk to the pitching coach. Hey, walk me through your 12 or 13 pitchers. Um, who, who is making the progress? Where do you feel like guys are getting stuck? How can we help you? We talk to the manager for a day. We talk to the strength coach, athletic trainer for a day. And just get a feel for where everybody's at and coach the mental game through the coaches. Really try to arm them with the skills, the tools, the techniques, the perspectives they need so that when we leave and we're gone for 30 days before we get back, their boots on the ground, they're ready to go. They're armed with the, the techniques they need to be able to advance their player's mental game while we're gone. And then when we come back through, we rinse and repeat that process. There's still some one-on-one stuff going on with the players who want to do it. There's still some group chalk talks that we do when we're in town, but a lot of that work day-to-day is done with and through the coaches. The same way, both walking through the, the roster with them in the office, but also going out and watching them coach and giving them feedback on how they're coaching the mental game when we're watching bullpens, when we're watching batting practice, when we're watching cage work, to be able to see how do our coaches articulate and coach the mental game and how can we help them coach it better. The third phase is the off season. And that's more October through February. 
And a lot of that's done more remote learning, distance learning. A lot of it's done with coaching education. We've got an online platform put together that our coaches will access and we can engage them through that online platform. But it's really more self-directed. A lot of it's done through text and calls and a couple camps throughout the winter. But it's much more of a low-key season where I think that the bulk of the heavy lifting is done um, in the camp setting and in that in-season setting. Love it. Okay. Um, spring training, team chalk talk. Is, is that scheduled out or is that one of those like, hey, I've noticed this over the last couple of days. So on Wednesday, I want to do a chalk talk on handling adversity for, you know, for, or is it, yeah, is it scheduled or is it kind of like let, what, what they need is what we'll, what, what we'll give them? Uh, the answer would be yes. So yeah. it's, it's sort of a balance of both. Gotcha. We do have a long-term four-year progression that we want to walk guys through. So on the long-term development side, we do have um, this curriculum put together that will walk a player through to help them develop their mental performance. And then within that, we try to be flexible and adaptable to the needs of the moment. And if we're seeing a certain trend like dealing with adversity and, and that we've, for a week long now, we've struggled with dealing with adverse situations, we might come in and do something on that. It might be fear in the box. It might be pinch hitting. Um, might be hitting with runners in scoring position. It might be coming out of the bullpen. So there might be certain things that our, our coordinator group, which are uniformed instructors who are basically the coaches of their coaches. So our pitching coordinator, hitting coordinator, catching coordinator might see something and say, hey, Bernie, can we pull the group together and, and do a talk on this? So it is sort of a balance of both where we're going long-term big picture. And then when there are certain things that, that arise, certain needs, we'll make the adjustment and do something more directly related to that. I'm going to start with a bit, kind of a broad question, then I'm going to drill down on some of this. What, what separates the great from the good when, when talking about the mental side of, of athletics? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, Clint Hurdle, who was our former big league skipper with the Pirates, used to say that being great is all about being good every single day. That it's not about having one wonderful moment where you're able to shine, but it's about just being consistent every single day. So I think that's part of it is, is being able to bring that level of consistently good preparation, consistently good execution, and consistently good review to the, the workday and the game. And it's not about rising to the occasion. It's about falling back onto the level of your training. Mm. So I think that's part of it is just the consistency at which guys go about their craft. The second thing is going to be, you know, I use the phrase a white belt spirit. And I think the best in the world have this white belt spirit. It comes back to the story that I like to tell that I've heard about the, the judo legend Jigoro Kano. So Jigoro Kano is considered the father of modern day judo. So everything that judo is about, everything that judo has become is largely because of his principles, his theories, his throws, his holds, um, some of the systems he put in for sparring and competition. So this guy sort of built out what judo is today. And he had a couple of disciples that, that trained under him and he sent them around the world and said, go spread judo. So Jigoro Kano was dying um, around the turn of the century, early 1900s. He and his family and friends were crossing on an ocean liner and uh, they were crossing the ocean and he got sick and they knew he was going to pass. So they all got around his, his bed and they said, what, what do we need to do teacher to, to help your passing be easier? Um, what would you, what do you need from us? And he said, I ask only one thing. Can you please bury me in, in my white belt? Hmm. And they were shocked. Some of his former students were like, we need to bury you with honor. We need to bury you with dignity, with your black belt. You I mean, you've, you've built out judo to what it is. And why would we want to bury you in your white belt, which is the beginner's belt? And he said, well, I've always seen myself first as a learner before ever being a teacher. 
So whatever's waiting for me next, I want to have that same perspective always as a learner first. So can you please bury me in my white belt? Wow, that's cool. And yeah, that, that story always stood out to me because, uh, you know, I talk about the most dangerous dudes are the ones that have the black belt skill set and they've got the white belt spirit where they're willing to listen and learn to anybody. I think John Mayer is a lot like that. You know, he's, he's got sort of that he's black belt spirit in terms of coaching and former playing as an AVP player, but he's got that white belt heart where he's always looking to learn, always curious, always exploring what's out there. Um, very humble in terms of, I don't know it all. You know, I use the phrase of being a learn it all, not a know it all. Mm. And it's that learn it all mentality that I've seen a lot of these really great guys. And probably the third thing I'll, I'll leave you with on that one would be being risk takers. You know, I think a lot of people, they earn the right to risk, but when the time comes, they don't take the risk. Mm. And I think what I see in the truly great ones is they, they earn the right to risk. And then when the time comes, they pull the trigger, they take the chance and they're willing to live with and accept whatever outcome um, is out there, whatever follows. And it's not that they want to fail, but they're willing to accept failure to go after something. And I think the really great players that I've been around, um, they're willing to take that risk when, when the time comes and trust their training and, and live with this, what I call absolute acceptance, reckless abandon, absolute acceptance, yeah. reckless abandon for the moment. And then acceptance of whatever follows. Give me an example of what risk would look like uh, for a big league player. Are you talking about maybe adjusting, making an adjustment to their swing or yeah. What, what, when you think, when you talk risk, what's that look like? Yeah. For, for a pitcher, it might be a guy on the mound and his changeup isn't feeling like it's kind of there that day. Uh, it feels a little off. Is he going to throw it with reservation or is he going to throw it with conviction and just live with the results? Or a guy doesn't have his fastball command that day. Um, is he willing to take the chance and kind of throw that fastball low and in? Or is he kind of going to go to a secondary pitch that may not work in that situation, but he's, he feels a little bit more confident with it. So it's, I, I would say probably talking my language because, you know, tennis and volleyball is sort of my first language. Um, it's that jump server on the back line when the score is, you know, 24, 24. And are you going to, are you going to rip it like you do? Or are you going to kind of just baby it in because you want to be careful or mm -hmm. a tennis player wants to go for that shot down the line and follow it up to the net, or they're just going to roll it, you know, high, big spinny shot back and play conservative. So it's when you have a chance to go for it and take the shot, are you going to do it or are you going to play it safe and just kind of play defensive? And I think a lot of these guys really go for it when they get the chance. Yeah. They, they, they trust it versus second guess it and they go for it rather than pull them back and, and play not to lose. That's good. That's good. So you said um, you'll take, you kind of have like a four year cycle or a four year, uh, I don't know what you, a four year phase to, um, to your, to your mental skills training or mental conditioning. Can you give us an overview of what that four years would entail? Just some maybe high points, some key things that you cover. Sure. We, uh, we kind of pseudo periodize it. If you think about the model of periodization, we kind of use that idea of, of what does each level need and to make sure that we give more at that particular level of that one skill versus other skills. But we also try to cover all the skills in the first year because they're going to need a little bit of everything. Right. So, so the five skills that we teach, um, we do a lot of other things, but these are sort of the five core ingredients. Um, first is motivation. And when you look at motivation, we talk a lot about um, growth mindset. We look talk a lot about how do they define success and failure? So the definitions of success. We look a lot at um, trusting mindset and playing to play great. 
which is something a little bit different than playing to win or playing not to lose. How do you play to play great? But all these have sort of a motivational undertow or undercurrent. So we spend a lot of time early on in sort of this motivational place with the guys, um, understanding their why, understanding their signature strengths, understanding their core convictions or their non-negotiables and how they're going to go about their career. Um, again, more motivational in nature. So we'll do that through their five years in the minors, but we'll focus more on it early on to make sure we get a, a good foundation. Um, we also focus on what we call the three C's, you know, confidence, concentration, and composure. And we figure that early on, they have this experience of going from being a really big fish in a tiny pond in their hometown to being basically a, a bait fish in an ocean. Mm-hmm. And they they go through this sort of confidence questioning, confidence, second guessing, um, this identity crisis of who am I now? I used to be the stud and now I'm just one of a million great players that are all better than me all around me. So the next phase we really look at is confidence. How can we build a robust level of confidence in a guy that's built on who he is and his strengths and not about his comparison group, who he's standing to the left and right of him. So at that low level, you know, we still focus on confidence for all five years, but confidence becomes sort of that second stage where we really try to, to hit it early. Then they get to that bottleneck where I guess high A, it kind of does this where you've got a lot of opportunity now at high A, the opportunities are, are drying up quick. And they realize there's a lot of players in my position, a lot of players behind me, a lot of players in front of me that are really good. I don't have a lot of chances left. And that's when the distractions start to come in. The uh, focusing too far ahead and what might happen in my career, focusing too far in, in the past about what happened last year and who's behind me, who's, who's following up behind in the, in the lower levels with me. So we focus a lot on concentration being able to be in the moment, being able to be present for each pitch, not getting caught up in the politics of who's getting promoted and who's getting demoted and, and who's in front of you and who's behind you, you know, all those uncontrollables, but really focusing on, on mastering the controllables and getting focused on being able to play that pitch at that moment. So that's sort of the, the, the third phase that we go through. But again, focusing on all five years we're doing that, but really emphasizing it kind of that high A level. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So then they get the double A, and we'll focus a lot more on composure at that point because double A's work gets very real in terms of a possible big league call up. You know, you talk about, you know, you're one phone call away when you get to double A mm-hmm. and we've had guys that were called up from double A and the, the stadium gets bigger. The competition quality gets better. Um, baseball becomes just more real. Um, so there's a lot more stress. There's more anxiety. They're closer to the big league. So they're starting to feel that pressure. So we really help guys build the, the skill of composure. How do I be able to, to maintain control of myself when things around me feel out of control. And we'll focus on composure at that level. And then at the AAA level, we focus on resilience. And that's that final skate. And we talk about the five skills. That's sort of the final skill we really try to emphasize. And again, our, our rookie ball players need resilience too. So we focus on it for all five years, but we really hit it hard at the AAA level because those guys are the guys that some guys are 21 and single with no kids. Other guys are 28 married with three kids yeah. and mortgages. Uh, some guys have been up and down in the big leagues three or four times, but they don't stick. Some guys have had a cup of coffee in the big leagues, but then they've been a career AAA player. Some guys, it's their first time in AAA, and they're excited, and they're a prospect. So there's a lot of weirdness that goes on at that AAA level. So really the resilience to be able to bounce back from adversity, to bounce back from setbacks, to be able to bounce back from uncontrollables. Um, the politics game is really big at that level because a lot's being done at the front office side that has nothing to do with your play, but has more to do with just roster management. So to be able to be resilient through all that, to bounce back through all that, um, I always think about, and I've heard this phrase before, um, 
resilience is a lot like the phoenix. You know, the phoenix dies into a pile of ash and then rises from its own ash born again. And then the other mythical creature is called the hydra, which the hydra is when you, it's like this beast that when you fight it and you chop off one head, two grow back. Hmm. So it becomes more formidable under adversity, more formidable under stress. We, we really talk about more that hydra mindset of, of how do you grow through adversity? How do you bounce back stronger the next time? Not just come back yourself, but come back a better version of yourself. So that's really that AAA level that we're really focusing on. Then the big leagues, when they get to that level, it's a lot more focusing on off-court distractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're getting pulled in many different directions. Guys are calling them up out of you know from their old high school that they never haven't talked to in five or six, seven years. Now this guy's saying, "Hey, can you get me ten tickets for me and my buddies? Hey, can you send me you know a glove?" You got kids asking for broken bats. Everybody wants autographs. Everybody wants interviews. Everybody wants time. And these guys are just trying to insulate to be able to get ready for the game that night. So how do they put up boundaries? How do they not get pulled too or stretched too far where they're distracted, not prepared for the game, but still honor their, you know, their community aspect or their community role of their, of their job um, without getting taken advantage of. So I think a lot of the the skills at the big league level are more focused on off field management, off field mental toughness so that I can be better on the field. So that's sort of, that's sort of that five year progression that our guys go through. That's great. Um, I've got a lot of coaches that listen to this, to this podcast. And I, and I, and I think, uh, probably a majority are college coaches. So if you're talking to, you've got 10 minutes with a, a, a college coach to impart to something to him that he can impart to his athletes, you got 10 minutes. What is the one thing you're going to impart to that coach for him to, to take to his athletes? What's the key thing? What's the thing that you would want to, uh, communicate to him? There are two areas that my mind goes to immediately. I don't know if, if I had time to think on this, I might think differently, but just my gut knee-jerk response is to embrace nervousness and to embrace emotion. And what I say by that is if you look at this idea of nervousness, this physical response to heightening pressure, um, you know, hands get sweaty, um, mouth gets dry, heart starts pounding, mind starts racing. So what happens when we get excited and we're about to go out on a really cool date with somebody for the first time? You know, our palms get sweaty, our mouth gets dry, our heart starts to race, our, our mind starts to race. The very same things happen when we're excited and when we're scared. It's the same physiological response. You know, I, I got this great picture where I show these two guys on this roller coaster and they're at the top and they're about to go down. And this one guy's like, yeah. This other guy's like, no. But I guarantee they're both nervous. They're both having the same physiological response. But one guy's learned to interpret it as this is really cool. The other guys learn to interpret as, is this is scary as heck? Mm. And to help our coaches recognize that this, this physical flood of free energy that our body gives us right before we do something important, play a game or be in a big moment of a game, that that's basically our nervous system's active warm-up. That that gets our nervous system to the same place that our body is physically, that gets our nervous system physiologically. And we all go through it and we're built to experience it and we're actually better because of it. So I'll walk players and coaches through what are these physiological responses? Why does our heart beat so fast right before a big moment? It's because our heart transports oxygen and glucose, the blood that, that carries oxygen and glucose. So that speeds up that transport system. That's super important. Why do we get the butterflies in our stomach? Why do we have to pee, poop, or puke before a game? Why does our mouth dry? Because that's all digestion related. And digestion steals a ton of resources, a ton of energy from us. And if we've got a lot of food in our gut, and all the blood's going to our gut to digest and all these resources are being put toward digestion, guess where they're not going? To our brain to think better, to our muscles to move better. So what does our body do a half hour before the game? 
we pee it out, we poop it out, or we puke it out. Mm. Our stomach starts off, we get this digestion, funny feeling, and our, our mouth gets dry. Also, that we can reallocate that energy to where it needs to be so we can move and think better. But it feels kind of funny before we play and we start to freak out. So I'll walk through all the different physiological experiences a guy will go through. Everyone's performance enhancing, but we've been taught to be afraid of it. We've been taught to experience these things and go, oh my God, if I feel this, I must not be ready because if I was better prepared, I wouldn't feel this. And we know that's not true, but that's the thought we have. And if I feel these things, I must not be tough enough because if I were tougher, I wouldn't feel these things. And we know that's not true. Every soldier I've talked to that's been in combat says they feel these things all the time. Mm. Every big league pitcher says he feels this before start. <clears throat> and then the third one is, if I feel these things, I can't possibly succeed. How can I possibly prepare, play well and succeed feeling this way? And we know that's wrong because there was a great Jack Nicholas quote, I believe, where he said, somebody asked him, you know, how many championship winning putts are sunk on the, on the final day on the 18th hole with shaky hands? And his response was every single one. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> it really highlights that you can perform at a really high level with these really uneasy feelings that you have before games and it's just your body getting ready. So if I had time to, to talk with a coach and I want the coach to be able to be able to share an idea with a group of players, it's this idea to lean into nervousness, to lean into this, this flood of physical energy that our body gives us and learn to make allies with it. It's not an enemy. It's actually an ally in this fight toward peak performance. And to be able to have that kind of a perspective as, as coaches think about big moments and what their players go through in big moments. And the other one is the emotion piece. The same thing that, that emotions are natural, emotions are normal, emotions are healthy, and emotions are helpful. There are no bad or good emotions. Emotions simply tell us where we just were, where we're at now, and where we're about to go. So they're more like street signs that give us clues or indications of where we're at in our career, where we're at in this game, where we're at in this season. Mm. And that if we understand that we can experience an emotion and then also choose to act in accordance with our values and our goals. Too many people think that if I feel angry, I need to act angry. If I feel scared, I need to act scared. If I feel defeated, I need to act defeated. When really I can feel these strong, powerful emotions and still act in accordance with my goals and values. Mm. And that's what I want coaches to understand is they coach their players through emotions and through emotional experiences, like just as a tough season or a tough game or a tough stretch to recognize that they can feel these feelings. And also with these feelings in tow, make choices based on their actions and their values. So that's another area I like to go with coaches. And because it doesn't take any kind of teaching of a skill. They're just perspective changes, a way of looking at something differently. And you can do that in a short amount of time. You can make a drastic change in how a person looks at something. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks for walking me through that. What's the most frequent constraint to high-level performance that you see? It might be different in other sports. I'll talk about pro baseball first, and then I'll talk about some other sports that I've experienced, and maybe there might be something there. But baseball's funny and baseball's tough and baseball's awesome because it's every night. Mm. And I didn't really understand that coming from other sports and coming from the military, what does it mean by baseball being every night? And as I got to know this baseball world, they practice every day and then they play every night. And they do that about 200 nights in a row. And it's the only sport in the world that I think where your process is threatened every single night with a box score. Mm. So you've got about 18 hours to recommit to a process before it's threatened again. And then good or bad, you get the results, you don't get the results, you've got 18 more hours to recommit to that process until it's threatened another time. So every night their process is being threatened with a box score. And I think the constraint, at least at the big league level or in pro ball, is 
the inability to commit to something for a long term, um, making an adjustment to a delivery, making an adjustment to a swing. And then you go to the game that night and you go over four and it didn't work. So it's like, oh, well, I'm going to throw that. I'm going to try something different because that didn't work. And then trying something different the next day and going over four again. Well, that didn't work either. Let's try something else. But I think the guys that are able to get past that and, and stay with an adjustment over the course of 10 days, 14 days, 21 days, they tend to have better results than the guys that when their process is threatened, they don't get the results that night. They start changing lanes. They start doing things different. They start abandoning what they believe is right. And they start searching for something else. And as a result, they lose their identity in, in terms of that process.